Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, he's our guest, novelist and screenwriter, John Niven. Well, the neighborhood bully, he's just one man. His enemies say he's on their land. They got him outnumbered about a million to one. He got no place to escape to, no place to run. He's the neighborhood bully. What has he done to wear so many scars? Does he change the course of the rivers, pollute the moon and the stars? Neighbourhood bully standing on the hill, running out the clock, time standing still. <laughs> Nobody's ever come close to choosing that one. <laughs> Brilliant. In fact, I was, I was nailed last time for defending it. Um, so go ahead, John. Why did you choose that? Well, as we all know, the song's actually about Israel, you know, from um, Infidels in 1883. Um, but I, I have a soft spot for heritage rock acts trying to do punk in the late 70s and <laughs> early 80s. So something like the Stones' Neighbours, Neighbourhood Bully by Dylan, those sort of kind of almost deliberately ham-fisted sounding punky tracks. That, that Peccadillo aside, just this week with... um. We play Infidels is one of our heavy rotation kitchen albums. I'm sure we'll talk about that, the reasons for that later. But um, just this, with recent political events in America, shall we say? Let's um, just um, let's just date that because we are recording this on the 12th of November, so about 2020. The 2020, um, yeah. a few days after the election was called for Biden, and it will go out, I think, this episode about four days after the inauguration. So, yeah, go. So, um, yeah, hopefully four days after the inauguration, right? Yeah. So um, just that, you know, the lyrics to Neighbourhood Bully just sort of took on, a, as with much of Dylan, um, takes on take different resonances depending on your age and the circumstances. So that, that, that was the reason I chose it. Great. Let's move on, or let's start start at the beginning. So, you and Dylan, um, people wouldn't necessarily identify you, I think, with with Dylan uh, because uh, you know you're famously were uh, an A and R man in the, in the '90s and Britpop and all that stuff you've written about. Uh, although you've written about the band, but mm-hmm. where do you where did you start with Dylan? If I want to get sort of um, grand about this, I've I've kind of always felt a slight connection with Dylan and that. I was born on the day the Hawks and Dylan began the 66 tour in Europe. Wow. So I think the at the hour I was born, they were probably partying in Stockholm or or more likely recovering on the day off, I think, on, on the 1st of May. Mm. Uh, I should have checked all these dates. Should, 1st because, of May, they played Dublin, I think, which was the first UK and Ireland date. Oh, I so, thought 1st yeah. of May was Copenhagen. I thought it was Stockholm. Well, might Copen- be, I might, no, I might no, be wrong. No, no, you are right. You are right, because Dublin's the 5th of May. I should have checked this too. I'm sure we'll have some Dylanologist exploding mm. with correcting us both. But yeah, as I got older and got to know more about Dylan, I was like, wow, that's, you know, because you look at those photos of, of Dylan and, and the band in places like Liverpool and Glasgow in, in 1966, you know, and, and they look like the future, don't they? Mm. They look incredibly, like you know, they look like indie kids from the mid eighties in nineteen sixty six. It's um, surrounded by these street auctions and the like. And I, I think um, here's the thing: I, I, my dad was much older than my mum, like twenty years older, maybe. My mum wasn't particularly interested in music in the sixties. I think she probably said that she thought Paul McCartney was quite nice. <laughs> um, and my dad's record collection was like Hair Barb, Alberts, Tijuana Brass, Do, whatever. Yeah. Um, Jeff Love's orchestra do big war movie themes. For some reason, they had the soundtrack to Hair for some <laughs> unfathomable reason. But it was just this really odd collection of um, music that had nothing to do with what was going on at the time, which is, you know, Dylan the Hawks arriving in, in Europe. So, I, And I was the eldest child. So I kind of grew up with no musical reference points whatsoever in my home environment. And I guess the first thing I got into when I was maybe 13, 14 was punk rock. Um, but but the really bad third generation of UK punk rock, I mean, like the Exploited and Antipasti and Crown Gen and bands like that, you know, it wasn't even the second wave. So I had, I had no sense of rock history 
having parents that didn't have that and not having an elder brother. So the, the first time I consciously remember hearing Dylan would have been 1982 when I was um, around my friend Gordon Hayes' house. And he had an elder brother who had lots of records out, you know, outside our bandwidth, so to speak. And uh, he played me um, Desire. So Hurricane was the first track I heard of Dylan's. And, you know, there was nothing... Uh, there was nothing in it musically that had anything really in common with most of the music I'd been listening to. Mm. But I think lyrically, something about the sort of righteousness and anger and bile in that lyric, the venom, it sort of speaks to a 16-year-old punk rock kid in a way. So there was that connection. Also now, with the benefit of hindsight, I think I got into The Clash in a big way and we were listening to Sandinista quite a lot, which was The Clash's current album mm. at that time. And I think a track like maybe Time and Dogs Lose This Skin, which is quite a long, free-forming, violin-driven piece. The, the ground had been prepared for me a little in terms of musically coming to something like Hurricane. So that was the first. And then he, he gave me the album. And I took it home and then, you know, you get past Hurricane, you gradually get into ISIS and one more cup of coffee and things like that. But I, I do remember thinking this is a signifier of age that the Dylan album Desire, which was, when was that, 75, 76? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in 1982, this felt to me like some artifact dug up by, you know, an Egyptologist from, <laughs> from the tomb of history. And you look at it now, it was like a six-year-old record. <laughs> You're mm-hmm. like, you know, when you get to your 50s, six-year-olds, six years ago is like last week, you know? I still think of The Strokes as a relatively new band. Back, back when you're that age, that's half your, your cognizant life, isn't it? Yeah, so did yeah. you go back then and uh, discover Dylan or did it just come to you helter-skelter sort of? Not immediately. I followed what I imagine. I imagine I'm about, I'm about to describe quite a, a typical tra- trajectory. Um, as I got to more into my late teens, 18, 19, and went to university, you begin discovering the sort of the, the holy, the, the trinity, the bringing it all back home, Highway 61, Blonde and Blonde. Mm. Those three records become, you know, this triptych of masterpiece that you sort of you get into, and you 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 really connect with things like positively Fourth Street. It, it kind of it's for the same reason that at that age you really connect with Don't Look Back, mm. you know, uh, because it, when you're in your twenties, you're all about the cruelty, and you kind of <laughs> yeah. that kind of the, the venom of those records and the bile of that sort of stage persona, and you know the whole. That whole thing really speaks to you at that age. Where I think if you're in your 20s and you don't think Dylan and Don't Look Back and the Dylan of those three records is a genius, there's something wrong with you. But I think as you get a bit older and you learn about things like kind of regret and um, decency and gentleness, you start to look at certain scenes and don't look back and you're like, Jesus Christ, don't be such a fucking dick. You know, you, you kind of, you know, you, um, your perspective and all that changes, doesn't it? Mm. But that, that was kind of where I got to by the time of my early 20s was kind of those three records were the, were the be all and end all. And then it was when I joined, I was 21, maybe I joined a band called The Wishing Stones and the singer Bill Prince, Bill's now deputy editor at GQ. But Bill was a huge Dylan fan and, and a few, three or four years older than me, which is quite a lot at that age. Bill had a theory, which again is quite seductive at that age, that Dylan made a Robert Johnsonian pact with the devil, who said, I'm going to give you all the talent in the world, you're going to make these three perfect albums, bring it all back home, Highway 61, Blood and Blood, then I'm going to knock you off your motorcycle and you'll make absolute garbage for years, <laughs> apart from fooling yourself that you're back with a swan song with Blood in the Tracks, 1975, that's going to be it. And uh, of course, as you get older, you realise that seductive though that argument was at the time, it's not entirely true. Well, it's very but, easy to say in 1987 as well, isn't it? I mean, that yeah, very yeah, this was like 1986. Yeah, very good point. But the one thing I took out of that was, oh, I better check out this album, Blood in the Tracks. So that that was the next record. You you sort of you pick that one up. But for many years, it kind of that was telling to me this clump of the mid 60s albums and then Blood in the Tracks. And it, it took a little while to fill in the gaps between the sort of late 60s and the mid 70s. Does John Wesley Harding speak to you, for instance? It, it nah. does, but it, hugely, yes. It just took a little more a little more time. It's as you get older, you sort of piece things together by act. Like I was saying a moment ago, 
the science student scene and don't look back, you think is hilarious when you're mm. 21, 22. And then yeah. you, I'm sure this has been covered in the podcast before. It's um, Terry Ellis who went on to, you know, manage Jeffrey Tull and set up Chrysalis Records mm-hmm. with um, uh, Chris Wright. And so years later, when I was working as an A&R guy in the music business, this is a bit of strange Dylan synchronicity, I wound up, me and Jeff Barrett and Martin Kelly from Heavenly Records, I think this has been 1998, went to see, we're in New York for CMJ, which is a big music industry conference, and we went to see a screening of um, Eat the Document at um, the Everyman Theatre in New York. And uh, for some strange reason, we wound up going to dinner afterwards with Chris Wright. From we set up Chrysalis with Terry Ellis, mm-hmm. and at some point during the dinner, I think I sort of realised the connection and said, "Oh, you so were partners with the science student from Don't Look Back." Anyway, yeah, and I went, um, "How did he? How was he about that?" You know, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, yeah, um, he was all right about it." You know, he kind of he felt in hindsight Dylan wasn't actually that hard on him because there's a moment where he kind of kicked him out the room, and he doesn't. You know, he tells him to mm-hmm. stay. I said, did he ever run into Dylan again? Because he was a pretty big music industry figure. And Chris said, yeah, he did. He uh, met Dylan again sort of late 80s um, in a dressing room somewhere. Uh, and I went, oh, God, did, did he remind him who he was? And he went, no. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, no, Chris did not go there. <laughs> How did Eat the Document go down at that screening? Because I've only seen the really shitty you know, version on YouTube. Uh, yeah, uh, it was wild. Because um, you had some real Dylan freaks there trying to convince themselves it was great. <laughs> when actually, there's an absolute pile of heroin adult lunacy put together <laughs> by, you know, Dylan and um, Howard Alk. Yeah. Uh, out in, I think, literally shooting speed out in Woodstock at the time, and just this absolute. I think they're trying to do a Bunnell movie or something. Yeah. But I mean, as you know, there's some amazing footage in it, whether, you know, uh, of Dylan and Robertson writing songs in hotel rooms and mm-hmm. on that 66 tour. There's some great little bits, but it's very much you're enduring this monstrous uh, attempt at filmmaking in order to snatch these little, you know, morsels from it. Speaking of uh, Howard Alk, can I, I'm going to just do a, a very clumsy segue, and <laughs> and uh, just to get us into uh, Big Pink, your uh, novella about the band, I'm I'm just going to read a little bit that begins. I looked up and saw Howard Alk and that fucker Bobby Newworth walking into the room. They were trailers, man. The main feature came through the door a beat behind them. People redistributed their weight when Dylan came into a room. You saw them shift their footing, cross their legs, press back into their chairs, or slip a hand in their back pockets, nod harder at something that was being said, suck more air than they needed into their lungs, and laugh harder than the jokes deserved. A lot of people suddenly found real interesting marks on the carpet, fascinating spots on the walls, and cool reflections in their drinks, but if you'd looked, you'd have seen... He had on a blue cotton shirt, cream pants, and brown moccasins. His hair was short and neatly backcombed, and he was squinting behind wire-rimmed glasses. From where I was sitting, cutting your hair, having kids, and going to bed at night looked like a good thing, man. <laughs> so that was Dylan entering the room, which I thought you really, I can only imagine. I mean, have you ever been in that situation where Dylan walked into a room? I, uh, sadly not. No, I don't, don't quite know what I doing myself in such a one but yeah that way i think that scene you mentioned set in albert grossman's house yeah. in the book at yeah. a party it's a big know. party yeah yeah so when i wrote that novel it was called novella actually it's uh 14 15 years ago now mm. 16 16 2005 it came out yeah yeah 2004 i wrote it it was i mean look the, the dylan mythology that and this is what I thought was interesting is that the whole woodshedding period when him and the band decamped to Woodstock was that, you know, they were they were doing that thing of, you know, going to bed early and getting up and living cleanly. As you dig into that a bit, you find out that that's absolute balls. They were, you know, <laughs> yes. They're all out there going, just as crackers as they've ever gone, just in a slightly more bucolic setting, right? So the book kind of became about digging into that a little bit. And... I'd kind of, I'd had the idea of writing a novel about a, a minor drug dealer who's on the fringes of a, of a big artist, which, because I'd seen that in the music industry, and it's quite an interesting place to be, because on the one hand, you have entree, you know, people want to see the drug dealer, mm-hmm. you're, get, you're getting in the limo, you're getting to the party, you're, you're on the private jet. But on the other hand, I wasn't seeing too many of these guys retiring at 40 with a pile of money and kicking back to enjoy their you know, 
sunshine retirement years. Mm. It, it tended not to be a happy life arc. So I kind of the idea of that guy's life, I got a character like that's life being the story. And I quickly decided I wanted to set it with a real artist rather than to do a kind of capote faction thing mm. and to set it around a real place and time and a real artist and just use that as the backdrop. And um, I, I guess go back to when a new Bell Prince in the sort of um, mid to late 80s, I'd kind of I'd been interested in that period Woodstock and it just gradually it became clear that I thought, yeah, that's that's where to do it. That's because, you know, people think, you know, the surface of that story, I thought it'd be interesting to dig a wee bit deeper and to try and, and do it. And yet when I was writing it, the thought crosses your mind, Jesus, I wonder what anyone who was really there would make of this. Mm. And then years later, after the book came out, um, and I can't remember how this connection came around, I befriended Alexandra Robertson, Robbie's daughter. Right. And we... I was in LA for, for work and we had lunch together in Beverly Hills. And it, it was, um, she sort of did the total Colombo thing with this nice lunch. It was all perfectly pleasant. And just as I'm leaving, she did, oh, yeah, I, I almost forgot. And, and turned back around and said, I, I meant to mention to you that my dad read your novella and said, my God, was that guy in the room? And I thought, oh, my God, for Robbie Robertson to say that, I kind of thought that, you know, I, I wouldn't have dared dream that would be the case when I was writing it, you know. Robbie Robertson comes across in a pretty negative way. Well, of well, all the band members, he's the only one you really put the boot into. Well, I don't know if it's put the boot into. I think Robbie maybe recognised in it that he was kind of um, a little more focused, shall we say, than the others were, who probably, you know, at the end of the day, the novel's largely set in 1967, so early 68. And at the end of the day, Robbie's the one who was getting the songs written and you, you kind of don't do that if you're sitting up till you know dawn every night going bananas um so i think he sort of recognized that maybe he's portrayed in the book with a little more flinty ruthlessness well in the, the in the um the recent rock back pages podcast with jez butterworth he's talking about this and he's saying that robertson said said that first and then he when he was asked again a few years later he was a little bit more cagey but i think one thing that everybody agrees on and you probably can't answer this but everyone from barney hoskins and grill marcus to robbie robertson and us mm. just wonders how the fuck you got yourself so credibly into that mindset where you seem to be almost living that life at that time because i think the the bit that's real about the book is um, th about thwarted ambition and kind of squandered talent and someone on the outside looking in, which is very much where I was in my early 30s. That, that Books kind of work, the, the details and the sort of mise-en-scene and all that, it's the, the emotional core of it, if that works. And I think that was real because it was real for me at that point. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of wasn't that far away from Greg, <clears throat> the central character in the book. So I think that, that, that's why it managed to punch through. And it's interesting you mentioned Jez because Jez wrote the screenplay for the movie version of Big Pink. I've uh, always wondered, did, did the money go away or something? Because it makes such a fantastic film. Uh, well, it's an interesting story, actually. I'll be careful how to tell it. Jez and his brother, Stephen, who's produced um, a couple of Jez's movies, they optioned the book. I think Stephen, his brother, really optioned it. And they, they renewed the option every year for, I think, like 12 or 13 years, from 2006, the year after it came out, until just last year. <laughs> and I think... You know, the, the movie's quite, it's quite, it'll be an expensive movie because you span the sort of 60s right through to the 80s um, and Richard Manuel's death. Yeah. Mm. So as soon as you're covering three decades of the film with that, everything gets expensive. And I think it, they were hoping to get a very A-list director to do it. And that's a fairly short list. And I think Scorsese passed for some reason. And then Sam Mendes was attached at one point and then went off to do Bond. And it's, you know, the MD who makes movies will tell you it's a kind of long, it's like you're trying to shoot an arrow down the hallway into target, but like a hundred paper targets are going to come out from the sides of the hallway with a hole in the middle of them for three seconds. And you have to shoot the arrow right down all the concentric holes. It's just very difficult yeah. to get yeah. done. And uh, yeah, but Jesse's script was great. It was, it was uh, different from the book in some ways. And, um, you know, who knows? It might happen one day. I, I kind of hope that this year with off the back of the interest in, uh, you know, Once We're Brothers, mm. and um, that maybe we'd get a rekindling. So we'll see. I was just really interested in how Richard Manuel sort of, 
almost becomes, he's not the protagonist, but he's sort of the most interesting a peripheral character, so the most interesting band member. And mm. although I've never, you know, I don't know anything about him, but it's, it was almost like you, you know, you were inside him, presumably all imaginary. Um, well, again, it was um, Richard Bamo was a case very much, I think, of sort of squander talent. D- Dylan really rated Manuel and Danko, I think, as songwriters. Uh, you know, and the, the collaborations with both of them are in the basement tapes time. And I think, but it's hard. And that, that's kind of what um, Manuel says in the book when he's pressed, why didn't he write more? It's hard. It's really hard. Mm. It, it's hard enough without distractions. And, you know, I think as Rick Danko famously said, you know, you want to try and make it a million dollars overnight when you're kind of 24. It's not altogether ideal. <laughs> you know, they, a lot of these guys went a bit crazy. I think, and again, it goes back to that thing. I think Robbie was interested in doing the work, where a lot of them maybe maybe weren't. But I mean, if you listen to some of those early, both with Dylan on the basement tapes and on the first band record, some of the sort of some of the Danko and Manuel co-writes are the best songs. What about? I mean, something interests me, and this might be a bit of a a, of a wild shot, but what about the presence of alcohol? Because Richard Manuel was, aside from being the tragic core of the band, as Robbie Robertson famously says, he was an alcoholic when he first met him. Um, your protagonist in the Fuck It List is an alcoholic, albeit mm. a, a reformed one. Is there anything to to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're probably opening up a whole kettle of um, therapy that I don't want to do too near there, buddy. Um, Our hourly rate I, is very competitive. I, I, you know, I, I describe myself as a problem drinker. Yeah, <laughs> alcoholic. Yeah. Um, really annoying. I, I'd like to drink a lot more than I do, um, but really annoyingly, I can't work hungover. Because uh, I find writing fiction, you need, you, you know, like music from Big Pink, we're just talking, you're trying to dream a, dream a new universe into existence out of nothing, which is a fairly hubristic act to undertake in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I find you need quite a reserve of self-confidence and energy to do that. And as you get older, certainly as you get over 45, that kind of, the diminishment hangovers and acting that, it's tough to, to punch through, you know. Mm. You know, when you're young, you can stay up all night and get straight into the office, and it's like, who cares? But, you know, that, that shit will kill you once you're over 40. Mm. Well, that, so, again, that's the Dylan S thing, isn't it? Someone said of, in 66, he was not only burning the candle at both ends, he had a blowtorch in the middle. In the middle, yeah. And again, that tied into the music from Big Pink reasons to write it. Dylan, you know, the mythology was he decided to get some fresh air. And it was like, <laughs> in reality, if you stay in New York City doing the amount of speed, and booze you're doing, you're going to be dead by the time you're 30. So mm. I think it was, um, and the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle, doesn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> Heroin, of course, figures hugely in uh, in Big Pink as well. And uh, mm. there was the, the scene with the uh, the, uh, the main character's father is a uh, is a heroin addict, and mm. uh, where they do heroin together was nothing to do with the band. But I I, I found that sort of jaw dropping and heartbreaking. Yeah, that I'm glad. Thank you very much. That was um, that was a tough one to to write. That was, I mean, it was just one of those incidental research things when I was researching the book. And you think, well, if Greg's in his sort of early twenties, nineteen sixty six, he was probably born during the war. Um, with his father have been in the war, and um, I kind of had it that he came from a sort of fallen middle class background. His father was a doctor. And I found out in the research that a lot of the American army doctors, certainly especially in the sort of Pacific theatre, um, a lot of them came back heroin addicts because they, they had access to, like, you know, untold amounts of morphine syrettes, those little syringes that just sort of one punch thing. And, you know, um, they used to say one, one for, I think, one for ecstasy, two for eternity uh, on the battlefield, you know, because if somebody was so far gone, you'd have to you know, mm. politely finish them off. Right, so, right. so so, I had this notion that the father had come back from the war, uh, a heroin addict himself, and that, you know, that, that, that's kind of where that storyline wound up going, yeah. yeah. Uh, also something that obviously found its way into the band's story later on. Yeah. And, and what Dylan albums now, just to, to, to bring it back to him, what, what Dylan albums now really yeah, really yeah, do for you? Well, here's the thing. So I, I was saying earlier that in your 20s, you sort of very much fasten on to that, triumvirate of you know, bringing it all back home through to Blonde on Blonde and then you gradually you go a little further up to sort of blood in the tracks and I found that as I get into my 40s 
that is kind of no Dylan song long enough and churning enough for me. It cannot mm. be long and churning enough. So a kind of Joker man changing the guard, late 70s, mm. early 80s Dylan is very much kind of where we're at right now in, in the house. I think we probably play most anything from street legal through to about uh, infidels. Mm. Uh, uh, tread slightly cautiously around the, the Christian trio. I'm kind of saving that for later life. Yeah. I, I, I have a theory, and this is twofold, that, you know, getting into Dylan, it's a bit like, you know, getting your kids to eat the vegetables. There's some stuff that's a very, you know, you know like a, nice, a sugar rush, something that's easily digested when you're younger. And then as you get older, you get into the heavier stuff. I mean, I'm kind of saving everything from time out of mind onwards for my, <laughs> so, uh, from my 80s. Your dotage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> But with the Christian, I thought with the Christian record, as a lifelong atheist, I thought maybe Dylan can help me get to sort of deathbed, you know, um, conversion, death, yeah, conversion sort of stage. Well, there's also there's a kind of reborn element of it. We were talking to um, the actor Michael Feast in one of our episodes a long time ago, and mm. he he again is not a religious man, but he is um, an addict. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying it. He said in the podcast, and he got into Slow Train Coming just as he was sobering up. And he said the whole notion of, you know, I want to look back at my life, I want to change my way of thinking, I want to, I want to be reborn, was, was really, really compatible with his mindset. It had nothing to do with God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm hoping that's absolutely true. I'm mm. going gonna, gonna to be, trust me, I'm going to be gunning for a little absolution down the line sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, sorry, there was, a, there was a little story I meant to drop in earlier when we were talking about the don't look back. Dylan, the sort of mid to late sixties peak sort of cruelty. Mm. Dylan, uh, as Andy told the story, this is one of my favourite Dylan stories of when he goes to Otto Preminger's house to watch. No, go for it. I think yeah. I, I think that's the story. I, I might be wrong. Someday they can check. But I think Fred Goodman tells it in Mansion on the Hill. He interviews one of the kind of Grossman's assistant managers from the time. I saw. So I should just say Otto Preminger was a huge, huge director at that time. Huge, huge and very and fam- pomp- famously famous, cruel. Yeah, cruel, pompous European director. Yeah. Um, and he just made a movie uh, called "Tell Me That You Love Me," Juni Moon, starring oh, yeah. Liza Minnella. Yeah. Which is again very much like the document, an unwatchable pile of shit. Yeah, huge flaw. <laughs> so um, he, um, he he wants Dylan to give him a song for the soundtrack of uh, this movie, and he invites Dylan and Grossman and this other management kid to his huge townhouse in New York to watch the movie. And so they sit there and watch it, and the management kid's telling Frank Goodman, because it's literally unwatchable garbage. We're all sitting there with our, our eyes rolling their heads. And Premier had, had arranged lunch for them in this huge, you know, oak panel dining room in his house, sort of served by chefs with menus, and they get in there. And an argument starts to break out because um, I think Grossman says to Premier, Premier had done a TV interview recently where he said, um, there's too much violence in American movies. There's literally a scene in Tell Me That You Love Me, Ginny Moon, where Liza Minnelli's character gets battery acid thrown, thrown in their face. <laughs> so somebody says to her, you know, um, that's pretty violent. <laughs> oh, oh. And he goes, bananas, that is not violence, that is art, you don't understand what you're talking about. And, he's bizarre. and Dylan finally chimes in and goes, it, it was kind of violent. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Premier goes bananas, you know. And so the management kids sit there think, okay, so this is over. We're, we're going to leave. And then it's just, the meetings, the, the lunch, the whole thing's gone as bad as it could possibly go. And then Dylan there goes, but you know, I know, maybe that movie wasn't so bad. I kind of like to see it again. <laughs> I think it goes, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, I like thinking about it. I'd like to see the movie again. I'd like to see it tonight. Here. Everything. Premier's like, fantastic. I'm going to get these like, yeah, sure. And Dylan goes, but I, I don't want you to be here. <laughs> but this is Premier goes but this is my home I live here <laughs> and Dylan goes uh, I don't care that's the only way but I want to come back and I don't want you to be here so Premier incredibly Premier agrees to the deal okay fine Dylan pre-orders dinner steaks and wine him and Sarah are both going to come pre-orders the dinner from the you know his private chef and says yeah I'll be back tonight and they leave the guy on the sidewalk and uh, Grossman goes to Dylan you really you want to sit through that pile of shit again? And then goes, no, no, we ain't got to sit through the movie. But uh, Sarah was redecorating the apartment, and he had some good ideas in there. He's so, <laughs> <laughs> just completely cunted the guy off, so he can come back and steal some decorating tips. 
fucking brilliant. There's only one window. person you believe that of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and in, in that period, in that window, <sighs> I, I guess this would be 66, 67, possibly. Yeah. Oh god! I mean, but you're very, you're very good at uh, at doing charismatic asshole figures, like um, straight white male, which I I read really quickly, which I loved uh, that novel. And the main character is a com- you know complete asshole. Objectively, he treats everybody very, very badly. Is totally self centered. Yeah, but you do, uh, you know, you you don't want anything bad to happen to him. Weirdly, because he treats everybody appallingly, but. Is that something you're fascinated by, or you've had personal experience of, or where, where does this come from? Yeah, I mean, I mean, working in the music industry, you're you're starting to be quite a lot of alpha male type A boiler house personalities, um, and these guys are always fun to write, you know, uh, the extreme sort of you know self obsessed assholes, mm. um, and I think you can have characters behave quite badly, and like in a novel, by the time you um, you put them through. You put the reader, in, especially novels written in the first person or the localised third person, when you put a reader into that compact for 400 pages, it's like a bit of a literary Stockholm syndrome develops. Even even Stephen Stelfox in Kill Your Friends, who's absolutely reprehensible character, I get readers saying, I, just, I couldn't believe it, but I wanted him to get away with it. And it's because you're in this kind of literary sort of downfall syndrome. You're in the bunker. And the roof's caving in, and you're thinking, how the fuck's he going to get out of this? And then you go, he should, it's Hitler, he shouldn't get out of it. Why, why, why are we rooting for him to escape? But if you put people in the in that situation long enough for the character, you can't help but a bit of that, you know. I think the same thing happens with artists. You know, if you, if you follow somebody's career for long enough, you end up going, yes, give me Neighbourhood Bully. I'm going to play Neighbourhood Bully again. You know, you kind of go quite far with those guys, wouldn't you? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, if if anybody else had had written and recorded Neighbourhood Bully, I wouldn't have given it the time of day. Yeah, if you got that in a demo as an A&R guy, that'd be a short, you know, that'd be the intro and it's over. (laughs) No, exactly. But, I mean, yeah, Dylan's got that thing, doesn't he? He's got that. And even back when he was being a complete and utter asshole. Yeah. um, And it's also the thing of, I think... I think he throws these things out and in again because he records so fast and he's so not interested in f- finessing the the fine points of it. And he makes sort of um, he makes decisions from the hip, doesn't he? Mm. I remember Bill and I who were in the Wishing Stones, and when you're younger, and you're playing guitar and you're writing so writing songs was such an arranging songs was such a difficult fraught process. You know, if you got the odd one here and there, it was great. And then you read about Dylan when he was working in Nashville and say the blonde he's got all these absolute top whack Nashville mm. session musicians sitting about and they're playing cards while mm. he has a fag and writes a song in the next room. And it used to give me a nervo thinking about that. You've got all these guys waiting about on a bazillion quid an hour and you haven't even written the songs yet. I just go in here and I'll, I'll go and crank one out. Give me half an hour. That, that used to, you know, but, you know, I don't think that's that far from how he's actually worked on many occasions. He'll come in, you know, with a few sketches and go, let's just, let's rough this up in the studio. And sometimes, it's, sometimes you know, you get sublime results and sometimes you get more acquired tastes like Neighbourhood Billy. I haven't read all your books, but I've read uh, a number of them. And I, I noticed in uh, Second Coming, you, you just mentioned Visions of Johanna. And, uh, and I was intrigued by, you know, that, just in that, why, why Visions of Johanna? I, I, most writers tend to be a bit cagey about using certain song lyrics or too much of them. Because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but as soon as you quote more than four words, you have to pay. You can, go, you can go up to four words. And you're four all right. words. Yep. And right. if it's the title, even better, you're all right there. But as soon as you get into quote, I know several um, novelists who have um, convinced themselves they can't live without a chunk of a Smith's lyric in, in a certain chapter until they see Morris's ransom demand. <laughs> And then suddenly, yeah, yeah, you know what, we'll find, like, maybe yeah. maybe this field mice lyric will work here. It suddenly becomes a bit more what's reachable. But I know I don't, um, I, I do it sometimes. I think I've probably on a few occasions just not bothered to get clearance, just thinking, oh, God, mm. if they end up suing this, I'm sure we'll figure it out. Yeah, and you allude to Stuck Inside a Mobile and the Memphis Blues again in the fuck it list, don't you? But you're very careful not to, not to quote it. Yeah, I do. I, plus, sometimes I think it's fun if you... Once you've written, I mean, I, I've written 10 novels now, and you kind of have a sense of who your audience is. 
yeah. and that they have a lot of shared cultural reference points that you have. So it's sometimes more fun to sort of dance around a lyric when it's clear to the reader with a little thought mm-hmm. what you're referencing, but you're not actually spelling it out. Well, you do a whole couple of pages describing Born to Run. Oh, um, and the second coming. Performance, yeah, yeah in the second coming. Yeah. Um, and without mentioning Born to Run. Yeah. <laughs> and without drawing breath either. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sentence, that entire page. It's fantastic. Oh, you do meet a lot of um, you meet a lot of fans who that's their favorite favorite bit in their favorite book. It gets mentioned yeah. quite a lot, which is funny. That's always nice to hear. I have read a lot of John Niven uh, lately, and I'm sitting uh, in bed with uh, with my wife. At you know, uh, as we're going to bed, and we tend to read for like half an hour, forty five minutes, and I've been sitting there chuckling, and 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 uh, but also you know, sort of my heart stopping, and kind of hoping that she doesn't ask me. She doesn't because I don't <laughs> want like you know, <laughs> you don't want to open that. You don't want to open that can of There was one actually a fabulous, uh, uh, a really good sex scene in Straight White Male. The, the the completely drug-addled, totally bonkers sex scene with the uh, with the young Hollywood starlet. Oh yeah, uh, involved yeah, yeah. masses of of just every drug under the sun. And I was like, I was getting a little uh, <clears throat> <laughs> whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but I I, I I I was so glad I you know I didn't stop I didn't say anything I didn't do anything I didn't I didn't want to John Niven in our bed. You, but, you start, uh, nobody wants John Niven in their bed, mate. <laughs> no. No fucker needs to be seeing that. <laughs> but but it's interesting, you know, writing about sex, and and even Dylan is very good about, uh, you know, writing sort of sexy songs. But that's a it's a real tricky art, I guess, isn't it? I mean, does that does it frighten you ever to Actually, you know, no, go I, out there? I, I think you um, make an interesting point there. I, I think um, Dylan does quite um, a, a nice line in you know, suggestively phrased kind of mm. double entendre lyrics that the kind of thing that Mick Jagger gets a lot of credit for. Dylan says, you know, uh, so entwined, Mick Jagger says, kissing cunt in can. I mean, that's, there's a, a bit <laughs> 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 gap there. Uh, what, what albums ride your pony on? Is that Infidels or is that Street, Street Legal? Street Legal. Oh, New, New Pony. New Pony, yeah. Yeah. New Pony yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's... Um, that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty... <laughs> Almost explicit. <let's> <laughs> but no, seriously, I mean, in Visions of Johanna, that that um, just Louise and her lover so entwined. That's that's exactly, I think, the kind of suggestive sexual writing you're talking about. It does feel kind of seedy, and it does feel quite explicit. But very little is said. I think that the the execution of it is so tender. Mm-hmm. So, so even more so in the the, the acoustic version, you know, that you will, mm-hmm. that we all first heard on Biograph, uh, it's so tender that you can uh, you fly past that, don't you? I'm willing to say that that's the best recording of the best song that Bob Dylan ever I, I, wrote. I, I think most of us are kind of got a lot of time for that theory. That know? whole album, whole concert, actually, when we finally got to hear the whole thing, I just oh, it's just amazing. Yeah. Also, the Every Grain of Sand was the first time I heard that was on. Oh uh, yeah, on Biograph, you know. Yeah, because that leaps out, doesn't it? That's, yeah. that's a, a hell of a brilliantly yeah. crafted song. Yeah, yeah, huge, huge moment. I have to save that for your religious conversion, though. Yeah, I know, that's, that's, that's in that period. For, you know, yeah, you, just, you dip in here and there. It's about, I remember when I was at university and I was trying to get to grips with James Joyce's Ulysses and a, a, very, a lecturer, Paddy Lyons, said to me, um, if you sit down at the start of this book and try to read right all the way to the end, you go, he, goes, he goes, just try dipping into it here and there. Dip into little sections, treat it like little chunks, and go. A lot of fancy a bit of Stephen, or a fancy a bit of Molly, or a fancy. You know, you can go through it mm. like that. And I did that, and then gradually found a way to read the whole novel from that. And I think like that, if any sort of discovering Dylan, I'm quite the way I look back at it now was incredibly patchwork for me. It was these mid sixties albums first, well, Desire first, then these mid sixties albums, then the early sixties albums, then a bit of sort of late sixties, early seventies, then jump to the end of the 70s and but you know and then things like every grain of sand from the religious period will jump out for you via something like biograph and it, it, it could take you 20 or 30 years to try and to start to see the whole picture can't it yeah but it's a, but it's a it's a lot of fun well what do you think of the what we can reasonably call the late stuff and i've got a quote from you here that says now in the twilight of life in the winterlude we see that dylan's body of work is shakespearean in depth and range fool to king joker to thief all human archetypes are contained there. We love him for his richness. Oh my God, I said that. Yeah, and you talk about his humour as well. Yeah, I think the uh, thing of the Shakespeare thing, I think, again, in a strange way, like The Simpsons, 
everyone finds their archetype somewhere in Dylan. Mm-hmm. The Dylan song that's kind of almost representative of a person or a, a moment in their life, a phase in their lives, you know, that kind of, in the same way as there's a Simpsons character or a Shakespeare character who works for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said earlier, I wasn't really kidding. My, my plan is to kind of um, solidly devote my later years to really getting into late period Dylan to a much greater degree than than I have so far. You know, mm-hmm. uh, how do you know what late period Dylan is if you haven't listened to it? I think we could roll the dice at this point and say sort of anything from the late nineties on would constitute, you know, mm-hmm. would constitute late phase. Yeah, time out of I mean, mind. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, time out of mind on it. You know, obviously, you know, it's uh, not dark yet. I remember hearing that when it came out and being blown away and thinking, I must go back to that record and start working forward. That's the kind of, that's the plan I'm going to do. He's only 55, 56 when he sings that song. And then all the rock journalists at the time were saying, this is yeah. the end of his life. You know, this is him looking yeah, back. He's looking like, back, he's sitting in the porch and kind of, it's all over. And yeah, here, yeah, we, are, here we are 25 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, nearly. So yeah, maybe you're right, actually. I'll be sitting here 20, what usually be in 25 years? 102? <sighs> Yeah, he'll bury all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Just see Bob Dylan standing there in the world at its feet. I, told well, you. I was reading an interview recently with Richard Markand, who directed um, Oh Hearts, God, Hearts, Hearts of Fire. Hearts of Fire yeah. Who um, I don't quite, I can't remember. He phrased it in quite a and Richard Markand, who who died just yeah. after that movie, mm. was famously known to, um, shall we say, uh, like a drink. Right. Um, and he alludes to something this interview read about Dylan. How um, <clears throat> many bottles of wine been opened at this mm. lunch at Dylan's place in Malibu mm. to discuss the role in the movie? Obviously, so many bottles of wine that he took the role in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he makes some reference to Dylan's stamina being incredible. Yeah. That, I mean, that's I, I've tried to think of something weirder in the Dylan story that the man who directed Hearts of Fire also directed Jagged Edge and Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that's. A, a, I mean, <laughs> imagine going to your grave with those on your CV. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, also, Richard Mark and the interview is nothing but praise for Dylan as an actor. Mm. I had to check the date. And I thought this must have been a sort of a um, you know <laughs> desperate piece of promo to promote the movie. Um, but no, I don't think so. I think it was sort of. Uh, after the film came out, it was sort of in isolation. He still, you know. Well, he's he's pretty compelling in that omnibus that was made uh, on the making of Hearts of Fire, where he just sketches mm. the arena guy in, in his caravan. Mm. Um, he's far more interesting in that than he is in the film. But yeah, how could you look, I mean, really, how could you look at that film? And but the thing is, it's, I still, there's a part of me that hopes that what Dylan does in the name of acting um, is actually way, way, better than it seems to be because it seems to be really really inept and terrible and just bad in in every way that we think of acting it's got no truth to it it's got he looks like a bored pop star or bored you know rock star playing a bored rock star really badly it's just Maybe it just it's going, to, it's going to take us longer to discover it. Maybe it's going to yeah. be the Christian albums. We're going to have to go, we're going to get back to it twenty years on and go. Hang on a minute, this is yeah. great. We'll have to get really, really old in, in the old folks' homes. I was talking to my wife about this the other day because my my parents have just gone into a you know a retirement home, and uh-huh. uh, you and I've seen pictures of it online, and you know it's my absolute nightmare. It's, it's entirely beige, you know. It's it's just awful. And you you think what would be you know the retirement home of the future? Uh-huh. Um, and presumably they'd be playing um, you know Dylan and the Stones and. Uh, I, where did it, where, where did that come from? Oh yeah, it's just that one day I'll understand. No, you're, yeah, it's a fire. We're yeah. all going to be sat there in a re- the sunshine retirement home, listening to yes. shot, shot of Love and watching Hearts of Fire. Finally, exactly. I get it. I get it. Yeah, you know that's when it's done. That's maybe the first true click of Alzheimer's. I get it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take him away. <laughs> but sorry, there was one. I'll a couple of little notes here. Um, I can't, I, I can't, I'm not going to say who told me this story because it might be apocryphal. But, you know, we're, we're talking about movies earlier. You know how a lot of rock stars will say when they watch Spinal Tap, it doesn't play as comedy for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it mm-hmm. plays very much as tragedy because they recognise with shame every terrible situation that they've been in. 
And I think just Strummer said something that the the scene where they have the fight about the the, the meat not fitting the bread. Yeah. He said, "I get that." He goes, "Because when you're a rock singer at a certain pitch of success, every human being's only got so much finite space in them for." dealing with stuff. And he goes, but when you're that successful, the demands don't stop. You've reached your boiling point. You can't take any more. But the demands don't know that. So the demands just keep walking in the door until finally you end up throwing a fit because the the meat doesn't fit the bread kind of thing. It's not mm. really about that. It's about all the stuff building up to that. Mm. So, And I think I was talking, again, I can't remember who told me this story. And maybe I shouldn't say because it's probably bollocks. But the a tour manager, as we say, working with Dylan in the European tour, I think the 80s, I'd say there was a situation backstage in somewhere in Germany one night where there was kind of people wanting to do a meet and greet that he kind of vaguely promised to do. It was interviews. There was all these, there was a bit of a scrum building up in terms of demanding his time hmm. after the show. The tour manager went to talk to Bob and he suddenly became aware, where's Bob? And it was an immediate, you know, on the walkie-talkies, broken arrow, number one is down. We've, you know, we've, <laughs> we've, we've lost Bob. This fucking mad panic breaks out, like, where's Dylan? And they're going to call the cut. He's out in the street and he says, look, and then finally at the last moment, he notices this pair of cowboy boots sticking out from beneath the tour bus. And he looks under and Dylan's lying under the bus. <laughs> On on the road, <laughs> and he goes. He just reached the point where, right? Okay, I can't do any of this anymore. I'm going to go and lie under the tour bus until it all stops. Yeah. It's almost like a kid sort of pulling the blanket over the head, so kind of, uh, you know, I can't see this anymore. So it can't be happening. It's like Dustin Hoffman in the swimming pool in the, in the Graduate, and it's yeah. through, isn't it? Saying I've come out when they've all gone. Yeah. It's exactly that. You're sitting in the bottom with your mask and snorkel. Just, <laughs> yes. but uh, it's one of those stories. I've no idea if it's true, but you can imagine getting to that point, can't you? If you're Bob Dylan, well, you would want it to be true, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd hope. Yeah. But it, it's it's a bit like that um, that thing that I read earlier of Bob Dylan walking into the room and mm. everybody behaving. You know, like that, like, like I know that I would behave in that way. Yeah. Somebody once said, "Oh, do you want to get Dylan on your podcast?" And I said, "No, there's no way." way. Are you crazy? It's like nuts. It's like I love the story that apparently back in the I think the early '80s there was a sort of uh, these indicators of a Rolf Harris Appreciation Society. <laughs> Sometimes they'd all go and dress up as Rolf and play his records and go bananas. And John Peel's producer John Waters heard about this and turned up at the club with Rolf Harris. Well, we I, I walked in there. <laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> Everybody just looked horrified and disbanded it. He said it was, it was like walking into a church on a Sunday with Christ. Everybody just yeah. goes, okay, we're done here. Okay, that's it. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't have Dylan in the podcast. That'd be, that'd be the end of the podcast, surely. And this is assuming that he would ever, ever want to. I'm going to fucking If you know anything about Bob's Bob Dylan, Dylan, he thinks that people like us are not even <laughs> worth discussing. Yeah. Go yeah, and get a life, absolutely. he said. You know, people, you no, know, if you wanted, if, if we, I think we once said we'd only have Bob Dylan on the podcast if we could. Could discuss, you know, sports with him. Yeah, or, the no, lot of, you know, Bruce Springsteen. Like we could just discuss that, but we well, couldn't. Vin Vendors once said he, he he talked to him at a dinner party, and, and Dylan just ordered a gigantic pot of tea, and they sat there to, having a, a conversation about the films of Fassbinder. And that was, right. you know, that's the kind of conversation that he can get animated about. I'd, I'd yeah, or, or sports, you know, yeah, a lot of rock, any sort of quality sort of artists, any stripe. I find that you meet the last thing they want to talk about is themselves, doesn't it? Probably the only people who you know could talk with him are the the, the idiots who stand up at uh, Q and A's. I'm sure you must have had this sort of thing, John. And you know they say, speaking as a, a writer myself, <laughs> I've, I've literally heard that exact sentence. And <laughs> it, it always it always um, precedes one thing. It precedes an enormous rambling. Uh, statement masquerading as a question <laughs> yeah. so I'll, have, I'll, I'll let them go for a couple of minutes and then go sorry could you repeat that it's a bit cruel it's a bit don't look back isn't it oh yeah. no but i've seen i, I went to see a, a harold pinter um uh interview thing once and uh, and then it turned into an audience q a and he was the only guy that i've ever seen eviscerate the, the people who asked idiot questions. <laughs> he, just, he would just say, that's a stupid question. 
<laughs> rephrase that or sit down? I saw the screenwriter Paul Schrader do that brilliantly once at the, did a talk at the British Library um, about 20 years ago. And somebody in the audience got up and they had, a, they had a rant at Schrader masquerading as a question, basically saying, don't movies nowadays make you sick? Wasn't it better in your heyday when films were like tax driving? And all that? You know, rant at this and then, Schrader took this kind of Schrader's response. He was like, "Why? Why are you so angry about most?" Uh, he talks about like Elmer Fudd, Paul Schrader. Like, why, why are you so? Why are you so angry about? Yeah, this, I'm about to do an impression that sounds nothing like Elmer Fudd. But they were. <laughs> he said, "Why are you so angry about most? Most stuff's always been bad. Most architecture's bad. Most food is bad. Most art is bad. Most music is bad. Find if you're an intelligent person, find good stuff and enjoy it, and shut the fuck up." The guy expected Schrader to shave his eye off. They were just like, "Most stuff's always shit." Find some nice stuff, enjoy it, and don't worry about it. <laughs> Good. Maybe it'll shut that guy up forever. Yeah, you hope, right? Any Dylan songs that you, you know, that have changed for you over the years, where that you've sort of heard them at first and uh, then thought, this is, now I get it, or? Oh, I don't, the, the records I talked about um, earlier, sort of, um, Jokerman, um, Changing the Guard, Street Legal, those, those sorts of records make more and more sense to me uh, as I get older. And all the things that you've, we mentioned earlier, Visions of Joanna or Every Grain of Sand, things that you've kind of been part of your life for a long time, they kind of, the meaning becomes more profound as you get older. Um, and, you know, novels uh, work that way too, I find, that, you know, something like John Updike's Rabbit novels, um, I, I liked in my twenties, you know, and I really liked my thirties. But you really get how great they are as you start to get really into middle age, you know. So similarly with with Dylan. Well, we, what what we mentioned a minute ago, um, not not dark yet. I think for the reason that you know, as we pointed out, when it came out, he was only he's probably not much older than I am right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's mid fifties, and yet now he is, you know, unarguably truly old. So a song like that, that was kind of him maybe playing a character at the time, uh, you know, projecting himself a little down the road, uh, now reads his absolute biography, doesn't it? Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside, immobile. Engineered by Tusha Manek and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. I'll eat when I'm hungry, drink when I'm dry, and live my life on the square. And even if the flesh falls off of my face, I know someone will be there to care. It always means so much, even the softest touch. I see nothing to be gained by any explanation. There are no words that need to be said. You left me standing in the doorway crying. Blues wrapped around my head.